I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. This is a partial list of my activities from the last two weeks. Barefoot bike rides in the evening with Rue over the I-5 bridge into Springfield as bats hunt the mosquitoes in the Gateway Mall parking lot. Also, dropping by my friend Luke's house to give him a quick hug before bedtime to tell him that even though he's been on some long business trips the last two months, I haven't forgotten him. Bouldering volcanic basalt on national grasslands with Rainy and Ben Madrid. Completing a scavenger hunt in Skinner's Butte Park with my outdoor program students. Coffee in the front yard, grass with Jenny in the early morning sun. Yoga sessions later in the morning with my rock climbing students. Placing my finger next to a scorpion in the desert to see if scorpions go towards a larger threat or away from that larger threat. Note, scorpions in the wild, they'll attack. Camping in a cave to avoid a rainstorm. Drinking a beer next to a campfire with Ben Temple. Watching the eastern rise of the brightest northern sky stars, Arcturus and Vega, on clear May nights. Fly fishing Wychoose Creek, Central Oregon, then fly fishing the Willamette River, Western Oregon. Rock climbing in the dark by headlamp with Aiden, Sam, and German. A barefoot trad lead belayed by Rainy because why not rock climb barefoot sometimes? A huge owl flying two feet over my head as I rappelled off the lip of a cliff. Running a capture the flag game with Hira and Marcos and 25 high school kids in the Hendricks Park Forest. Reading the Buddha of Suburbia by Hanif Qureshi. Reading Zadie Smith's essay collection, Feel Free. Reading This Line by Pablo Neruda. Miro apenas los ojos más externos del cielo y me inclino a tu boca para besar la tierra. Which doesn't translate perfectly, but I see it as I barely measure eyes wider than the sky and I tilt to your mouth in order to kiss the earth. And if that image exists, and if all of these activities are possible in less than two weeks, then the beginning of the end of the world is off to a pretty nice start. I was reading the Swedish writer Frederick Bachman's Us Against You this week. And his character, Benji, is moving toward the lake in his secret island. Bachman writes, When someone learns to be in the forest as a child, it's like gaining an extra language. And while I'm sure that's true in rural Sweden in the forest, and in other forests too around the world, I've been thinking this week about the bigger idea. What if the natural world is a language, not a place? 
I know geographers and geologists might disagree with this theory, or maybe they wouldn't. I don't spend enough time with scientists to know. But maybe our place theory is too concrete. Place is too literal to encompass the natural world. So here's what I've been thinking. Nature is acquisitional, like a language. Elements that we pick up, lose again, regain, and piece together. The more you know about the natural world, the more you realize that you don't know. In the same way that a high school Japanese 2 student might say they, quote, know how to speak Japanese. Whereas a college student majoring in Japanese, in exchange in Japan, might say they're starting to learn the language. In nature, there are the obvious pieces. Sunlight, wind, sand, birds, trees, mammals, rocks, and oceans, to name just a few of the almost infinite elements. Then there are the more subtle pieces, complex verb tenses, sarcasm, comedy, the way a scrub jay will imitate the call of a red-tailed hawk, or other subtle clues like, if the Earth's orbit and rotation are both counterclockwise, as the Earth orbits the sun on each successive night, it's oriented slightly more to the east than it was the night before. And therefore, a star rises four minutes earlier each night or wheels four minutes in the celestial clock if it's circumpolar. But nature is also intuitive. It's a feeling. I was trying to think of an example, so I was thinking this. Even with your eyes closed, you get a different feeling in Joshua Tree National Park than in Crater Lake National Park. Even if you can find two days that are the same temperature, say April 30th in Joshua Tree and July 30th in Crater Lake, the altitude, the pressure, the angle of the sun, the smells will all be different. You have to isolate feelings in each location. You have to learn to intuit and to be open to intuition right from the start, just like immersion in a new language. Because understanding nature requires significant and sustained time in the complexity, bathing in that vast unknown. You have to sit and wait. You have to look around. You have to listen, ask questions. You have to stop and think. You have to work through different smells, explore, touch the elements, set them down again and pick up others. I was thinking that in nature, there's certainly dialects as well. The Atacama Desert in Chile speaks a different language, a different dialect, slightly the same language, big tent, but different dialect from the Siberian tundra in northern Russia. And a snowy plover in Canada speaks a different dialect from a diamondback rattlesnake in Oklahoma. I can comfortably, me, I can comfortably speak the language of the Sonoran Desert in southern Arizona since I lived there as a child and was homeschooled and I was unschooled outside daily in all seasons, running around in that environment from morning until night. But if you put me above the Arctic Circle in Alaska... I will be deep inside another dialect, maybe so far outside my linguistic comfort zone that I might not recognize most of the words. 
And in the same way, a polar bear plopped into the southern Arizona desert might not feel like it's linguistically prepared to grapple with standard words and usages. But language is change, as is the environment. If a high school English teacher holds too tightly to what she might call, quote, the rules of standard English, she won't survive long in a dynamic linguistic world. And in the same way, humans in nature have to be prepared for swift and dramatic change, both of their making and more often outside their control. Then there are also connotations versus denotations. A cougar digging next to my tent one night at Waldo Lake sounded literally like a pig, exactly like a hog, while that hog is happily eating slop in a pen. But this cougar was frantically digging at my pee hole next to my tent. The slop sound was its gasping, slobbering mouth. The cougar, upset at his area, now smelled like my area, and he didn't seem to be exactly sure of what he was going to have to do about it or how he was going to deal with me, how he was going to solve the problem of me. And final point. Just like with human languages in nature, I can never know everything. Nobody can. Nothing can. It's impossible. Even the concept of fluency is a construct that we hold too tightly. Are you sure that you're fluent in whatever language you say you speak fluently? And what does that mean? Who knows? I think of myself as a nature person. I run an outdoor program where every class is outside. I explore and hike and rock climb and bike and watch birds and fly fish and listen and sleep and wait and struggle outdoors. I camp in the fall, camp in the winter, camp in the spring, camp in the summer, and usually under the stars without a tent. But do I speak nature? Am I fluent? Or is it more likely that there are millions of dialectical subtleties that I will never notice before I die. Yesterday afternoon, my childhood friend and his daughter picked me and Rue up from our house. We piled gear and three dogs into their truck and drove down to a parking lot a half mile from the river. We hiked to the north bank, crossed at the run, 150 feet to the island in water no deeper than chest height. Swift current, but traversable as long as you go slowly enough. Then the girls explored the island with the dogs while Ben and I fly fished the eddies and runs on the northeast side of the island. After, we built a fire pit as it got dark, dipped river water and boiled it on the open fire for ramen, ate snacks and green bell peppers, made s'mores, talked until 10.30 when the half moon and the stars were out bright above us. Hiking back across the river in the dark last night, holding my exhausted puppy like a baby in my arms so he wouldn't drown, I remembered something from my childhood. It was the summer I was 10 years old. We'd had an exchange student from France the year before, and her family, named La Force, said we could stay during the summer in their apartment in Montpellier, in the south of France, while they were at their beach house on the Camargue Côte d'Azur. 
So we kids were sent to stay at our grandparents' house in Central Oregon while my dad worked double and triple shifts to buy six plane tickets to France. My dad exhausted himself working, but then he bought the tickets and came to Central Oregon to recover and sleep for a couple of days. Then we flew to France, transportation taken care of, and a free place to stay. Now this next part will sound improbable. I get that. But it's true. For money, my 12-year-old sister Hillary would juggle on the street. While she juggled, I would play violin next to her. My brother Coop would play violin next to me. And my sister Haley, in kindergarten, five years old and devastatingly cute, would stand and hold a basket to collect donations from the European tourists. Half the money went to the family's regular food budget, and half went to savings for fun things. For example, if we made money, we could buy what all of us kids wanted, which was boule glace, delicious ice cream balls that we craved every day in the summer heat. We were given a lot of freedom and responsibilities too, and I was often sent to the stores by myself to buy things the family needed. My parents making me memorize our address in case we ever got lost and had to find our way back. Just the year before, though, and this is what I thought of last night as I was crossing the river in the dark, I'd heard a French pop song that I thought was stupid, yet I would sing it in Montpellier all the time. It went like this. Allo, allo, monsieur l'ordinateur. Dites-moi, dites-moi, où est passé mon cœur? Which means, Hello, hello, Mr. Computer. Tell to me, tell to me, what's going on with my heart? I think the song was kind of a joke. I mean, it got stuck in my head, but it was probably a joke, and you can see the music video on YouTube still, and it looks like a joke. The idea back then of asking a computer a question seemed like the dumbest thing I'd ever heard of. Who would ever interact with a computer on a personal level? Back then I thought, aren't computers developed in labs by mathematical scientists with pocket protectors? And why would I want one? And computers will never ever be a part of normal people's daily lives, let alone something they ask questions of. Then, fast forward just a little bit, and I'm addicted to my laptop now. And I wouldn't want a permanent record of all the questions I've asked Google over the past 10 years. Then there are cell phones. I often think about this. In 2004, I was teaching high school, and zero students had a phone. In 2005, one boy in one of my classes owned a phone, and everyone in class made fun of him for it because they all knew their phones were just so your parents could track you. But three years later, by 2008, nine out of ten students in my senior class had phones, and every one of my students of all ages wanted one. Go to the 2019-2020 school year, the last year we were all together, and only one student of any age, freshman through senior at my high school, didn't have a phone, only one that I knew of. He's a kid who likes to go outside, and when I asked him, he told me that he doesn't have a phone 
because he doesn't want all of his freedoms taken away. But everyone else, all of us, have bought into everything when it comes to tech. Phones, laptops, desktops, tablets. So that French pop song isn't sounding like a joke anymore. Allo, allo. Monsieur l'ordinateur. And because of our voracious tech buying, I saw a story on computer chip shortages in The Economist this week and an even better article on ZDNet that I'll read just two paragraphs from for you. This is titled, Global Chip Shortages, Supply Chain Woes Leading to Tech Infrastructure Inflation. The global chip shortage is a much bigger problem than everyone realized, and it will go on for longer, too. The impact of the global chip shortage continues to ripple across the tech supply chain. Developer burnout and a global chip shortage, the LOT is facing a perfect storm. That gives you the basic idea, but I really like this short paragraph. While Cisco's quarter was solid, inflation worries lingered over the company's outlook. Cisco projected fourth quarter revenue growth of 6% to 8%, with non-GAAP gross margins of 64% to 65%. Non-GAAP earnings in the fourth quarter will be $0.81 a share to $0.83 a share. Wall Street was modeling non-GAAP earnings of $0.85 a share and gross margins pushing 66%. Gross indeed. It's scary right now. But the rivers are still there. Crawdads scuttling under rocks cutthroat feeding on the eddy lines, osprey hunting pike minnow, and in the dark, bats flitting out over the surface of the water. The rivers are waiting for us, the entire natural world. If only we could work out this global chip shortage. Clearly, more production is needed, also a better supply chain. We need more tech, because we need more things. I know this because I just asked my computer a question and got this answer. The Pacific Ocean Garbage Patch is the largest of the five floating plastic accumulation islands in the world's oceans. Located between Hawaii and California, there are more than 1.8 trillion pieces of light plastic in the Pacific Patch that even though they float, weigh a combined estimated 80,000 tons. I also got this fact from my computer. The Pacific Ocean Garbage Patch is twice the size of Texas. But if you know anything about geography, that means it's three times the size of France. Over spring break, I was sleeping in a ponderosa pine forest. And one night, in the middle of the night, it started snowing on my face. I didn't have a tent with me. I had a little bit of tarp, so I kind of put that over my legs. And then I scooched in close to this clump of trees, these three pines. Went back to sleep. And the leeward side, so it wasn't quite snowing on my face anymore. It smelled pretty and cold, and I slept well. Then early in the morning, 
just before it got light, I started to hear some sounds. And as the sun rose in the east, above me, I noticed that I had accidentally slept next to a snag. So my head was right next to this already dead but still standing tree. And above me, a little black-backed woodpecker was starting to go to work as the day broke. Viene la madrugada, you know? So this little black-backed woodpecker, he was like, like that. And as soon as he started being kind of successful with his rhythm, another black-backed woodpecker came in, and it was like, so then they were going back and forth, and they were like, and I'm like looking up as the sun's rising, and the sun is glinting on their black feathers, and in comes a huge American flicker, big woodpecker, with that white and black speckles and the red on it, really beautiful. And he comes in, and and he, he kind of goes to, like, serious work on the tree. He's more of a jackhammer. He's like, brr, brr, brr. So then the woodpeckers are kind of going back and forth. They're like, They're actually better DJs than most middle school boys on SoundCloud. Okay, here's the last story from what's been an interesting couple of weeks. I was at the Columns rock climbing again because I have an addiction. And there was another addict there, someone I regularly see climbing, and this person goes by the name Critter. I was climbing by myself, and next to me, Critter was climbing with my friend Bryn. Bryn's a pretty relatable character, young and strong and smart and funny. She's a better climber than a lot of people and a better artist too, but I wouldn't characterize Bryn as strange or odd. Critter, on the other hand, is a bit more eccentric He lives out of a car. He cleans his wetsuit and waxes his surfboard in the sun at the rock climbing crag, which is 90 miles from the ocean. Also, Crater looks the way that you'd imagine. He's really long-haired. He has a huge mustache. He's covered in tattoos, head to toe. He often climbs barefoot, wedging his gnarled and filthy feet into the crevices of the rock, and I've never seen Crater with a shirt on. So the three of us were climbing and talking and laughing because I like them, and we always get along, when Critter says, okay, hypothetical situation. Say you are at a party, and you're just partying there at this party, and there's a lot of people there, and then you meet this person, this amazing person, this phenomenal person, and instantly you feel ecstatic, and you have a magical connection to this person. And the two of you hang out all night and eventually you get alone and it's just the two of you and you realize you have a spiritual connection with this person and it is the most amazing night of your life. 
and you wake up next to this person in the morning and this person checks their phone and says something about a certain name and you realize that you know somebody by that same name and then pretty quickly you both realize that you're cousins. What do you do? Brendan and I were like, what, what, you get out of there, you leave. Friends like, I would just go so fast. And Critter's like, no, no, no. You had this like celestial attraction. And I'm like, no, dude, you're cousins, you go. And Critter says, what about second cousins? We're like, you still go, you don't date your second cousin. He's like, what level of cousin would it have to be for it to be okay? And Bryn just starts shaking her head. And Critter's like, third cousin. You realize in the morning that you're third cousins. That, that DNA is pretty different. And I'm like, no, I, I don't think you, you date your cousin or do anything with your cousin. And Critter's like, I think you're forgetting that you realize that this might be the person. It's a magical connection. Your third cousins, which is legal. Legal in every state. Bryn's like, no, I don't, I, yeah, it doesn't feel right. And I'm like, how about nat- not dating any cousins at all? And Critter's like, fourth cousin. Magical connection with somebody you later realize is your fourth cousin. And I'm like, how about we date no cousins at all? Not at all. Just scientifically, the DNA is too close. It's not a good idea. And Critter's like, is it the taboo or the science? And Bryn's like, both. And I'm like, you don't date any cousins. What if you're a man and this person is also a man, so there's no procreating going on, so no possibility for the DNA to be too close between the two animals? And I'm still like, no, no dating family. Bryn's like, hard pass on the family. Critter's like, but you have a magical connection and there's no procreation possible. So is this maybe the right level of cousin and attraction? And is there any way that these two people could be together? And I was like, Critter, is this, is this a hypothetical situation? And Critter's like, totally hypothetical. And I was like, well, how in the morning all of a sudden would you figure out that you're distant cousins? And he was like, well, say like, she said, I have an Uncle Ron. And I also said, I have an Uncle Ron too. And then we realized that it's the same Uncle Ron. And I was like, wait, Critter, you came up with the name Ron pretty quickly. Do you have an Uncle Ron? Critter's like, yeah, I do. And I was like, wait, did she have an Uncle Ron? And Critter's like, yeah, but it was a different Ron. And I was like, Critter, was this the same Uncle Ron? Did you, is this a true story? Did you sleep with your cousin? And he's like, totally different Uncle Ron. It just got me thinking. Just got me thinking about this hypothetical idea that kind of, I've been going over in my head. And I was like, Critter, are you dating your cousin? And he's like, I'm not dating my cousin. And I said, here's a good rule for today. Actually, for every day. No dating family. This episode, episode 19, is dedicated to my friend Sam Rojas Chua, a poet and artist who's now living in Eugene, Oregon. 
If you haven't read his book, Saying Your Name Three Times Underwater, that poetry collection is phenomenal. So to Sam, thank you for being so kind and encouraging this last month as I was struggling. And to everybody else listening, to everybody else who's messaged me on Instagram or emailed me, left a message on my phone, this has been a difficult year. And I just really appreciate all of your kindness. Thank you to all the listeners. Thank you to all the people who have encouraged me to keep going this year. Thank you for helping us through this dark time. I love you all. And thank you for listening to the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. And my-